Welcome to the YA Cafe, where we share conversations about books for teachers, readers, and caffeine addicts everywhere. On today's episode, we'll be talking about Children of Blood and Bone by Tomi Adeyemi. Grab a mug of your favorite beverage, friends, and let's talk books. This podcast is made possible by Nouvelle ELA Teaching Resources. Find secondary ELA resources to engage and inspire, like creative reading task cards, N-O-U-V-E-L-L-E-E-L-A. Something new. Welcome, y'all. As always, our first segment will be spoiler-free, so you can stick around even if you haven't checked out the new novel yet. I'm Amanda Thrasher. And I'm Danielle Hall, an 8th and ninth grade English teacher, and I blog at teachnouvelle.com. And we have two guests today from the Bookstagram community. Woo. Courtney has a Bookstagram at Coco underscore Chasing underscore Adventures. Hey, Courtney. Hi, everyone. And Anna has an Instagram at Hanias07. Hi, Anna. Hi. In Tomi Adeyemi's debut novel, Children of Blood and Bone, we meet Zaley, who is only five years old when King Saran ordered the raid that wiped out the Magi and killed her mother. Now, Zaley has a chance to bring magic back to all of Arisha and strike at the monarchy and realize the power flowing in her own veins. Okay, start us off, Amanda. What did you think? So I thought that this book was really incredible, particularly in the beginning. I was so sold from the world building, from this seething rage of the main character that I thought was incredibly useful and valuable, especially considering that the author has stated from the outset that this book was largely inspired by the Black Lives Matter movement. And the fingerprints of that are just all over the book. And it's really great. What about you, Courtney? I really enjoyed the book specifically because the author took a lot of time to research the subject, the material. She wrote the book well. The prose is good. Um, I also liked her character development. She didn't just give us a mythology or a fantasy book. She gave us a book with purpose, meaning, and good writing. How about you, Anna? This has to be such an amazing book. It's like one of my top reads of this year. The writing was really good. It captivated me like from the beginning and then just understanding where the author was coming from. Just it had deeper meaning for me. So, Anna, one of your Instagram posts was about that deeper meaning for you and how much this Mm -hmm. book touched you. Do you want to get a little more personal here? Sure. Um, (laughs) Just bury your soul. No big deal. Yeah. (laughs) Um. For me, like the book represented, it reminded me a lot of Black Panther. When I saw Black Panther, everybody went there and saw, you know, it was action, it was Marvel. But for me, I saw um, Black beauty. I saw us Black people being held high. Um, Gosh, I'm getting chills just talking about it. Um, This book really just presented us in a different way, um, showed us as being heroes and fighters and people that were proud of who we were, not ashamed. So that, to me, was huge. Like, I literally cried in some of the parts of the book. I really loved it, too, but I think you've really said it all. So let's move on and <laughs> dig a little deeper. So, Courtney, one of the things I wanted to ask you, one of your Instagram posts about this book, you say, Tomi Adeyemi does not create perfect characters. She makes characters that are human, flawed, and relatable. So do you want to jump in and talk about some of these characters and what you liked about them? Yes. So what I liked about the author is that she doesn't give you any opportunity to rest or relax or settle into the book. Hits you with action from the very beginning. And she introduces you to this powerful character, Zelly. 
what's great about Zelly as the heroine of the story, she's not perfect. You can see yourself within her. She is rash and impulsive, and she has feelings and emotions that cause all kinds of trouble throughout the book. But in a way, she proves that even that person can be a hero. So I think at the beginning, she introduces you to a really great character, especially one that's relatable to any minority or person of color. Yeah, and one of the things you said about Zele that I really liked um, was that, yeah, she did have all of these flaws and all of these problems going in, but we saw very early on what kind of person she was because she had the chance to, like, get everything she ever wanted and walk away. And as soon as somebody needed help, somebody who she had never met or heard of before, she immediately put herself in harm's way just to help that person. Even though then she left and her brother said, you always screw everything up. She still just has this core of, I'm going to stand up for people. I'm going to help people. And this is what informs like all of her decisions through the novel, that she's always going to be this person who stands up for people, even though she has all of these other character flaws. This novel is told in multiple perspectives, for people who haven't read it, we have Zaley, who is like strongly our protagonist and the most awesome character. We have Amari, who grows up in the palace and then runs away after her tyrant father kills her handmaiden. And we have Anon, who is the crown prince and ready to continue his father's work to eradicate magic. So how did this multiple perspective story work for you, Anna? It actually flowed very well. The um, the fact that, you know, they can go back and forth and you got to see different points of view of what was going on. So I thought it was perfect. I had no problems with following the story. I never got lost. It it was on point. One of the other things that this multi-perspective triple character thing does for the book is that it presents us with three different visions of the world i mean yeah. it's just three characters with diff- from different walks in life yeah. approaching a world with in privilege differently right yeah. when i get to read each one of these characters each one of these perspectives we see every person's view we see at least multiple person's view you you can see something from a place where you're wealthy or you have more privileged or you have those things that set you apart from someone of a different economic status or a minority group you have someone from a minority group um, and then you have someone who's also from a minority group who may be your ally or your friend or someone who thinks like you or sympathizes with you and how that person walks in the in a world of privilege. So I think that was awesome of the author to consider as she wrote this story. Yeah, I really loved that. And I, I loved that the mark of being a diviner, a diviner would be an unawakened magi. And the mark of a diviner was this like shock white hair. And mm-hmm. so it wasn't something that people could just pretend they didn't have and Mm -hmm. so the king would readily round these people up and subjugate them and torture them simply because of the way that they were born that really stuck out to me because i saw it in a different way as in the magis couldn't change who they are that's that's what symbolized them as in us people of color we can't change our skin color to be anything but what it is right One thing I wanted to talk about, we started the beginning of this book from Zele's perspective. I didn't realize that it was going to be multiple perspectives until we went to Amari's perspective. In Amari's very first chapter, she has this experience of, you know, she goes to breakfast, she gets chastised by her mother, and then she walks into a room and her father murders her, like, childhood friend, who she considers a childhood friend, but in reality is also her servant and maid. And throughout the novel, like, Amari's 
connection to her seems to remain unwavering. Uh, but I, I thought that she never really came to terms with like the fact that the only reason that her friend was in her life was because she was a servant, like because she was part of like the subjugated class. And I feel like Amari never really came to terms with like her own role and her own benefiting from this system. And she only felt like the sting of loss because her friend died. Yeah. So, so my thought on the entire book is that Tomi addresses like very, very complex issues in a very simple way. Right. So in, in this case, you know, she's a princess in a lot of ways, she's another heroine in the story, but by her not even really understanding her own place in privilege, her own place in society, that is what disconnects her from Zelly. Eventually, eventually that is the thing that, that will always separate her from any person that isn't a a minority group or who is um, being subjugated towards systemic issues. In this case, a, a form of racism. She does not understand that, no matter how much Benta was your friend, she was your servant and she served you. Yeah. And only when she's hurting and only when she dies, do you feel something Mm -hmm. and hopefully you will feel something before someone has to die. Definitely. So even though like from the beginning, Amari is clearly supposed to be a sympathetic character. I hope that they go more into that in future books. So we mentioned this book's kind of common DNA with Black Panther it's got some other really important shared DNA that Tomi Adeyemi has said, which is Avatar The Last Airbender. Yeah. <laughs> and we are huge Avatar fans here, and we just love this. We saw all of the obvious and more subtle parallels, and we just loved it. Have y'all seen Avatar? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Best yeah. ever. Right. So it was almost my thing I like a latte. I think it happened a couple months ago, but it was where uh, Serena Williams had this huge uh, like Twitter conversation with somebody about Avatar The Last Airbender. And it was like, oh, my God, Serena Williams watches Avatar. I watch Avatar. (laughs) (laughs) So if you haven't seen Avatar, definitely go watch Avatar. Um, Not the movie with the blue people. Although that, you know, has its own conversations. We're we're talking about The Last Airbender and also not the movie version of this, but the Nickelodeon series version of this. So to get really specific, go watch the Nickelodeon series version of Avatar The Last Airbender. The common DNA here is, you know, a magical, awesome girl with her non-magical older brother going to save the world before the deadline of a celestial event. And we also have a prince who is torn between his duty to his nation and his family and uh, doing the right thing, right? So we'll talk more about Enon and his quest for whatever he's questing for in the spoiler section. (laughs) (laughs) And with that, friends, we'll take our first break. And when we come back, we'll share about things we like a latte. Then we'll return to our discussion of children of blood and bone and dig a little deeper. Welcome back, y'all. It's time for Things We Like a Latte. Danielle, what's your brew of choice this week? Well, in the last episode, we talked about karaoke and our love of karaoke, or more particularly, your love of karaoke, Amanda. It's true. So my thing I like a latte is this video that went viral of this family doing One Day More from Les Mis. And I love this video because it's clear that this family, the LeBaron's family from Utah, has singing training. Like, 
They're awesome, and it's clear that they've practiced this thing, but the whole video takes place in their living room and has like three generations, including two babe in arms and two toddlers who run around during this video. And at one point, the woman singing Eponine is like singing and her baby is pulling on her hair and she's still singing beautifully. So I just love this video. Found it absolutely charming. How about you, Courtney? Well, I like a latte is Justina Ireland's newest book, Dread Nation. It is a story about Jane McKean, who was born two days before the dead began to walk the battlefields of Gettysburg and Chancellorsville, derailing the war between the states and changing America forever. It's a book that combines a little West African mythology, um, some Civil War history and fantasy. So newest book that came out in the street. Check it out. Awesome. How about you, Anna? What's your thing you like a latte? Okay, so I know it's kind of cheesy, but like... We love cheesy. No apologies. (laughs) Three months ago, I was introduced to almond milk. I have this weird thing with dairy. I, for two and a half years, have been unable to consume it because it would literally make me throw up. I know I haven't been diagnosed or anything, but when I was introduced to almond milk, I went bananas on cereal. Like I had it for like a whole week for every meal. So for me right now, it's yes, with bananas. So for me right now, it's definitely almond milk. That is my love right now. Awesome. Thank you for sharing your joy of almond milk. And Amanda, <laughs> how about you? Uh, so my thing I like a latte is this Mashable article. It is pretty short, and it is called Millennials Destroyed the Rules of Written English and Created Something Better. And it is nice to see something about millennials that isn't just millennials have murdered napkins or whatever it is. <laughs> And this is talking about how millennials have changed the meaning of written language. Things like writing yes with no punctuation is very different from writing yes with a period. Or the use of capitalization to emphasize words as opposed to just using them for proper nouns or beginning of the sentences. Basically, the article goes into how the changing written language adds nuance to the language while disregarding these older rules. And I was really interested in it. I think that internet language has a lot of unwritten rules and it's cool to see people starting to dig into that so i thought that this very short article was uh really interesting for that and that's on mashable and it's called millennials destroyed the rules of written english and created something better by rachel thompson awesome we're going to take a quick break and when we come back we'll return to our discussion on children of blood and bone the rest of the show may contain spoilers, so if you're leaving us here, keep in touch on Instagram and Twitter at YA Cafe Podcast. We'll be back after this quick break. product you'd like to get in front of teachers, librarians, and other book lovers? If so, email us at yacafepodcast at gmail.com. Welcome back, y'all, to the YA Cafe. We're continuing our discussion on Children of Blood and Bone by Tomi Adeyeme. If you haven't read this yet, we want to warn you again that this segment will contain spoilers and magic and stuff. (laughs) And pirates. No pirates. No pirates. All right. So, Courtney, one of the things I really wanted to talk to you about and just talk in general about was allyship. Um, You mentioned loving the representation and discussions around allyship in this novel. Um, What I really liked is 
when the author wrote the book, I think it's, of course, for, you know, a person like me, right? It's for some minority group or some person of color to read and find empowerment in it. But she also left a lot of room for others to read this, read the book and find their place in the movement. And, and then she sort of challenges each one of those who finds themselves in an ally position to consider not only the perspectives, but their role in institutionalizing or their role in furthering any systemic prejudice. I mean, in this case, Amari sort of is the face of that. She's someone who is an ally. She feels moved by the movement and the tragedies that are happening around her, but she's still in a position where she lives by that. She survives by that. She almost counts on that for her own movement and space. And so Tommy sort of challenges her and she challenges the reader to think about what that means. Everyone's in love with her as a character. She's a great character. She's a great princess, a great art. But there's so much about her that is problematic that the reader has to point those out if they want to read the book. Right. At one point, Zaley and Zane are talking and Zane defends Amari. Zane is Zaley's brother. And he says she hasn't done anything wrong. And Zaley says she hasn't done anything right either. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that it's really important for, you know, a reader like me, who's a white reader, to understand that just because you don't do something wrong doesn't mean that you've done anything right. And if you're benefiting from the system and you're not reckoning with that and working to end your own benefit from systemic racism, you need to, like, check yourself and start doing the right thing. Yeah. I mean, I think that in this particular instance and in in our lives, too, like not doing anything right is doing something wrong. Like just the fact that Amari is a person of privilege means that her every action contributes to the oppression of this this group of people. And you can't get away from that. Like so Zane saying that she didn't do anything wrong is like really just getting rid of the fact that she still benefits from all these things. There's one more thing that Zane said, too, mm-hmm. or that Zayle said about Zane uh, that I, I think also really informs why he is able to have this sort of relationship with Amari. Um, in the very beginning, Zayle says about her brother, he wants to believe that playing by the monarchy's rules will keep us safe, but nothing can protect us when these rules are rooted in hate. So mm-hmm. that quote to me was like a very direct echo of the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house, right? Like Zane believes yeah. that if he plays by the rules and like does the right things, eventually things are going to work out. And I think that's part of why he is able to have this connection to Amari pretty quickly because he sees her as someone playing by the rules and trying to be a good person within those rules and within that framework. Yeah. This is one, again, one of those other complex discussions um, that Tommy has in a very elegant and soft handed way. There's this idea of respectability politics. There's this idea that a person could be so good that they won't get in trouble, that things won't happen to them. But then you see things like Stephen Clark, you see things like Trayvon Martin, where they are seemingly acting in appropriate manners, or, or, or there's nothing about them that should get them troubled or killed, but they find themselves in that situation anyway. Um, and so it's here is an example of Tommy sort of taking a sort of a nod to that, saying that you cannot be so respectable that you're going to walk out of being a victim of racism. But because he believes that, it does make him easier to um, connect with Amari. And I think that same thing is what disconnects Zelly from her. She, she, she can't relate to that. Yeah. Not until it's Inan, that is. <laughs> yeah, right. Because, you know, love, 
love. <laughs> I, I, I gotta say, I didn't buy that. I was like, really, Zele? You're just gonna flip just like that. I wasn't sold. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I had a big issue with that too. Yeah. If you are bravely endeavoring to listen to the spoiler section and you haven't read the book yet, we are referring to the romance, quote unquote, bomb <laughs> between Enon and Zelly. He has this awkward, like, Kylo Ren relationship with her at the beginning where, like, the literal first look into each other's eyes, they feel like lightning has struck and Gross. it's nonsense. <laughs> yeah. This particular romance is is not the one I like. I don't ship this relationship. Mm, nope. <laughs> but what I understand here is that, you know, Inan, he has a relationship with a freedom that he will never have, uh, a person who could be holy themselves. So if more than anything, it's what the relationship rec- uh, represents that I like. Mm. Inan wants that, and being with her represents that. But in the end, it's not something he can have. Do you think that your perspective of their relationship would be different if Inan did not wind up having magical powers and suddenly, like, developed this connection with Zele without that landscape? Mm, I don't know. (laughs) I mean, there was a little bit of a connection because of the powers. I don't think that... (sighs) That's such a hard question to answer. It's like, without the powers, would he still feel the same way towards her? Maybe a sense of freedom. She was out there fighting for what she believed in, and he was sitting there trying to please his dad. You know. Yeah. So I, I, I don't know. I don't think it was specifically the power per se. I just think who she was and how she moves in the world is what he liked. I mean, he was very constrained. He was living under his dad's rule, under this big burden of masculinity that sort of kept him from doing things that he might enjoy better or treating people differently or with more empathy. And somehow in her, he saw something he could be, a place he could go, a world he could live in, and then it all fell apart. Because of his choice. It fell apart because of his choice. Yes. And you know what? You're right. Like, it's important to understand that it it wasn't magic that stopped that. In the end, that was a choice. Yeah, I thought it was a really brave and interesting choice for Tomi to make to write Enon so that in the end he winds up still siding with his father and wanting to destroy magic, even after seeing everything, just because of that real fear when he saw the Magi defending themselves against the guard attack. And I, I thought that was really interesting about how mm-hmm. how Enon turned away from his relationship with Zele, not only because of his father, but because he was like genuinely afraid of power, magical power. He wasn't afraid of the power power that he got from being the crown prince. Well, yeah, you can't have other people have power, Danny. That's the problem. <laughs> right. I think that's what's interesting about the book is like, you know, him seeing that power and the fact that there was going to be a way for that group of people to take them over or overpower them. That was enough for him to want to strip away their power. And again, talking about allies, sometimes that is the response of an ally. They agree that what people are doing to a minority group is not right. But the idea that the other group might have more power than them, they don't want that either. So they're silent. I saw it more as a self-hate because he had power. And he went to the point to covering up, you know, dyeing his hair. So to me, I saw that as, you know, those are your people, but you're going to, you, you hate them so much that you'll go to the extent of covering up your hair so nobody knows who you truly are. 
Yep. I I didn't like that. <laughs> right, because his father was so, like, his father had ingrained in him this magic is terrible, magi right. are terrible, any hint of magic is terrible. And so when Enon found out this part of himself, he hated that about himself because yeah, of his right. desire to please his father. Right. I remember growing up, a lot of people would say the whole paper bag thing. If you were darker than a paper bag, then you weren't considered beautiful. And mm-hmm. that, that was one of the things that I picked up when I read that part. So the Magi, I thought that like the Diviners had all white hair. And then Enon just had that one white, white streak. Is that right? Did everybody else read that the same way? And then at the very end, Amari had the same white streak that Enon had. And that was like the yep. visual signifier for them. Right. So okay. did you interpret that as like... I have magic, but non-magical parents. I, I don't know. No, because at some point, I, I don't. I, I'm trying to recall what where it was where they talked about. Um, didn't they say something in the book where the didn't the father already have another family? Well, he definitely was sleeping with the commander. So before that, he did have a family, and they were oh, murdered sorry. by magi, oh, right, yep. and that okay. was kind of the trigger well the justification Mm -hmm. for the father's hatred Mm -hmm. i mean it was presented as a trigger but i don't know how authentic that was right yeah i I guess i'm I'm interested to see how she plays with that in the following books i'm sure that she's gonna have further explanation and world building to explain that more i think there's definitely a lot of symbolism with with the idea of having just this white streak because it did make me think you know well if the kids have it then does the father have it or is it coming from the mom? Like I didn't, I wasn't really too sure about that. Or maybe that. it meant like that she was running around on him or something. I right. I don't know either. I don't know. Yeah. And then another part is, is this, this the whole idea of, you know, this where everyone, like maybe everyone has a little bit of magic in them, a little bit of power in them somewhere that's hidden deep, you know? Maybe. Yeah. So I'm, I don't know. So it, I, I'm, I'm really interested in see how she plays with that um, in the follow on book. Me too. And I am super excited that there will be two more books and I am super excited that they're already in talks for a movie and I'm super excited. She got a seven figure advance. That is rocking. Like, yes, it's terrifying. <laughs> I cannot world, imagine. Right? Yeah. I cannot imagine like getting a seven figure advance and being like, all right, now you have to sell seven figures worth of books or you're never going to sell another book. Like, <laughs> and she's, she's 24. Right? And she's like, well she's on her young. way. Yeah, you go, girl. <laughs> no, I didn't realize I didn't realize what a push this book was getting. But we went to Barnes and Noble yesterday, and there were like two shelves that were just children of blood and bone. And I was like, "What?" So it's awesome. <laughs> so one of the things I wanted to talk about was the difference between Enon's reaction and Zaylee's reaction to their magic. Zaylee says it's like breathing for the first time, and Enon says it's like a thousand spiders. Did that like strike anybody else? I mean, I thought it was a good bit of description. I'm not, I'm not sure what you mean by strike. Like, in what way? How did it strike you? Because if you bring it up, you feel things. Like, I guess we mentioned his potential self-hatred and his father's kind of influence on how he interpreted everything. But did you entertain the possibility that it, it really did, like, feel physically horrible to him? I guess, I mean, that's what... The potential of the loss of a loss of privilege is does feel horrible, right? The idea that he's going to look and be different 
the magic, everything about what taking on that cloak means makes you feel different. It's a burden. You're carrying a new load. Right. So it was like an anxious reaction to this Mm -hmm. new truth about himself. It could also just be that this is something that Zele has always wanted and worked towards. And for Inan, it's this horrifying thing. So I don't know if this is like an appropriate metaphor, but it kind of makes me think of like the day after working out. If you're a person who likes working out, you might be like, oh, I'm really sore. That means I'm getting super swole. But if you're a person who doesn't like working out, all your stuff just hurts. Like, (laughs) you know, (laughs) so I don't know if that's similar at all. But I mean, I think that people can feel things in very different ways based on their thoughts going into it. Yeah, that makes sense. So at the end of the book, Amari kills her father. Uh, that happened. And she tells him, I'll be a much better queen than you ever were. And that's one of those things that when she said it, I was like, oh, Amari, I still don't think you get it. Because like, there's still like a fundamental power structure problem in your country where one person can order the mass slaughter of thousands of people. One person being a good person in charge isn't going to fix that. You mm-hmm. have some more steps to take. So I'm I'm looking right. forward to seeing how she digs into that in the next couple books. Yeah. The only other thing that I guess is um, the part that I cried the most on is when Zoo died. Like rereading that scene, because I read like we read it before I came for this discussion. But like when I read that, that was a lot. I have a three-year-old son and I live in suburbia. So my child is the one Black child in every classroom, every place we go. And I that's like one of my deepest fears is that one day he's going to walk down the street you know, like, again, I, I have a high income. I live in a very high income area. And, you know, one day they're going to see my son walking down the street and say, who's that kid or whatever. And he's going to raise his hands and he's going to get shot because he's going to look like a threat to somebody. When I read that scene, I just kept seeing my son's face over and over again. Like, Tony did an excellent job in writing the scenes to create emotion. Yeah. And she even says it, like, in her acknowledgments. She names all the names. Not even all the names. Like, who are we kidding? It's not all the names. But she names some names of kids that have died too soon. And their ages, which I think is really important, especially because some of the younger kids reading this, like, if someone's reading this and they're 14, they might not remember Tamir Rice, you know? Right. Or whoever it was, like, six or seven years ago. So having those mm-hmm. those names and ages there really drove home, like, why this book is so important. Right. You know, before Inan and King Thrawn, I think they didn't have faces to the magic. It was just some, the magic was an evil thing that killed a prior family that was something to be scared of. There was no face to the magic. So Zeli, Zane, Zhu, Kwame, all those guys become faces that someone should connect to and say, hey, this is what happens when, when this type of tyranny exists. Right. So one thing we didn't talk about very much, but we mentioned it early in the beginning, how this has been compared to Black Panther is that she did a lot of study and research on West African mythology and built all this around this somewhat Nigeria place. Like, uh, it's sort of a fantasy Nigeria. It doesn't quite line up, obviously. And that really made the story come to life a lot more, I think. Um, Just having this background, building it up, and it just gave it such a rich background, and it gave it so much more depth, I think, having, like, this history of her knowledge and her research that she's dug into it like it really showed in the book and I think that it all came together really well for her that's our show for today friends thank you Anna and Courtney for being with us thank you thank you yes thank you this is really great and 
And thank you to our listeners. You can find a, like, what clan are you quiz on childrenofbloodandbone.com that we'll link in the show notes. And you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at YA Cafe Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. And if you're enjoying the show, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. Happy reading.